Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Lessons from the OCBC phishing scam that could mean better things for you if somebody tries to fish your details in the future. China cutting rates, um, its central bank easing its policy interest rate. So really in stark contrast, PBOC with other major central banks, right? Uh, like the Fed, we're looking to four rate hikes to contain inflation. Um, PBOC taking a different approach. What does this mean for the yen, which last year was the best performing Asian currency? Uh, then we take a look at India's giant IPO, uh, described as India's Aramco moment, the LIC IPO. Should you be interested and in sitting up about that? And then we take a closer look at MAS's new rules for the crypto space. New guidelines, I should say. They're not quite rules just yet. With Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. Let's start with the OCBC scam. The latest, of course, that all OCBC phishing scam victims, so all 470 of the OCBC customers, some of whom lost their savings. Uh, it was such an eye-popping phishing scam. They're all going to receive full goodwill payouts. So that's great news for them. In the meantime, banks in Singapore in consultation with MAS say they're going to put in place more stringent measures in the next two weeks. These include removing those clickable links that you get in emails or SMSs from banks if you're a retail customer, uh, lowering the threshold for fund transfer notifications. So you can sit up earlier if you see a fund transfer that looks suspicious. So lowering that threshold set at a default at $100 or lower. And then a delay of at least 12 hours before the activation of a new soft token on a mobile device. And I'm sure many people are cheering this one. Dedicated and well-resourced customer assistance team. So you have someone human to speak with if you have feedback on potential fraud cases. So this made uh, a priority by banks. So Arun, a lot to get through here. I guess my first question to you is your overview. What are the lessons that can be learned by consumers and organizations in the wake of this huge scam? You know, Michelle, I'm, I might be biased considering I used to work in banking before getting into this whole fintech startup ecosystem. Hmm. But other than the last point you mentioned, hmm. which I'm 100% on the same page as, wherein, you know, if there is a fraudulent case, the last thing you want is to be being made to wait for like 30 minutes, 60 minutes or 90 minutes, which was sadly the case in this specific situation, just being kept to wait. And then finally, some customer service person gets in touch with you, especially considering the number of issues were, I think, like 450 or 470 odd, right? Like, so it was not like tens of thousands that would have inundated the customer service line. Mm. But I think from that aspect, that was one uh, big lap in the security setup of OCBC. But from the other aspect, and this is where, you know, a personal bias might come in, and this definitely won't be the most populist uh, opinion or view on your show. I, I fail to see where the bank kind of went wrong over here because SMS was sent to certain individuals that might have had an incorrect link or, you know, the A was in a different font or something or whatever else, right? Like instead of OCBC, it was ODDC or something and yet these guys and the individuals clicked it without knowing it. 
went ahead and gave their username and password. I don't know. I mean, me personally, when I log into my DBS account, yeah. one of the screenshots that always pops up is beware of phishing events, uh, of uh, scams, beware of SMSs being sent that's not from a trusted source. Do not give out your username and password, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't know. In this specific, I, I mean, I think it would be a very different conversation if the system, the digital tech system or the website or the account was hacked and the money was taken away. Uh-huh. In this specific case, I mean, legally speaking, OCBC did not have to refund the money. It was just coincidence or it was in a weird turn of events, lucky that there were 470 cases. And not 470,000. Yeah, I hear uh, you. Yeah, right? Like, uh, so in, in that way, it was more of a goodwill gesture. Had it, had it gone either way, if it was like three or four people, I don't know if OCBC would have refunded the money. If it was... 450,000 people and it was a huge, it would have been a huge dent to the bottom line of the bank. I think this might have gone to court or the regulator and there would have to be some kind of discussion about maybe creating an insurance plan or something. And then where do, who pays for those costs? Eventually the consumers, right? So if I'm a, if I'm a user of the bank, bank services, and I'm very careful about not giving my username and password to potential scam artists, why do I have to sit and pay a huge insurance fee because some people just click their links on their SMSs? I don't know. It's, it's a very messy situation. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting point of view. Now, let me ask you, have you never clicked a link from an SMS from your bank and then realized it was a promo or something? Have you never been diverted from your mobile phone because of an SMS that's come in from your bank uh, to a web page? You know, I try to think about, and the only thing that I, the only use case that I've seen for SMSs is that OTP number. And I'm really, maybe I just blocked it out of my memory, but I really can't think of a situation where a link was sent by my own bank. Yeah. Other than for an advertisement, right? Which See, it happens sure. to me all the time. And I think that we are primed. And, and I'm glad to see that this is changing. So this won't happen anymore. We won't get clickable links in emails or SMSs from banks. Because I think until this change that will take place in two weeks, we have been primed. Because we get these SMSs saying, click this link for your Christmas promotion for your standard chartered Michelle so that you can get $250 back when you spend 17000 or whatever it is. And so people are used to doing that. And when you see this this poof SMS having entered this legitimate SMS chain because you refer back and you say, oh, okay, you know, I have had this notification from my bank and that was real. So why wouldn't this be real? Ordinary man on the street may not be able to differentiate if it's entered your legitimate SMS stream. So I think we've been conditioned to use our phone as, as a gateway to our bank. And, you know... We need more protections for individuals so this doesn't happen again because it could. It's not that sophisticated a scam, apparently. It isn't. And, and I completely agree with you with the aspect of uh, maybe not from banking, but, uh, you know, any other brand that's out there. There'll be emails that are sent, there are SMSs that are sent to avail of some promotion or to take a look at it, etc. I just feel that there should be a big line drawn here between clicking the link to, like, look at an advertisement mm-hmm. vis-a-vis clicking a link and going through that link to enter in your username and password. So, you know, just just being a little bit nuanced over here. If I mm-hmm. click the link and some weird ad came up on my desktop and somehow that managed to copy my username and password because hypothetically if my bank website was open 
and you know somehow they manage to scrape through that information, then I think the bank should be at fault. But you know, in this case, I think it's a little bit more murkier where just don't put in your username and password into websites that are through links or through anything else. But like you're so conditioned <laughs> to doing that. Even with a 2FA, you click a, you're, you're on your, your computer and then you're sent to your phone in order to click on something and then you're sent back to your computer. This is part of the consumer journey in psychology, I think, these days when it comes to banking. Let it, me just ship... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, it, it's uh, legally speaking versus what the government has to do, regulation kicks in. And it's fantastic to see MAS being at the forefront of this. So Mm. from that aspect, you know, great initiatives and definitely required. All righty. Any worries personally on the question, is it safe to keep my money in the bank? No, definitely not. (laughs) I mean, if we go down the path of Japan where, you know, 10,000 yen bills are being stopped, I think that's a much more dangerous situation. All right, because I actually hear people talking about this, that, you know, it's almost something that you never thought you'd anticipate. You'd never have to think about losing money from your bank account. All right, here we go. What do you think of this idea of a handshake? So you know how it is banks call you or you call the bank and you're trying to make a transaction happen and then you're expected to cough up all sorts of details. What's your first name? What is the maiden name of your mother? What is your your first dog's name? But you don't really know if it's a real bank calling you or a scammer and you're handing over all these details over the phone. So I understand this is being uh, something consulted on by authorities. What do you think of the idea that banks should also verify who they are when they are expecting information from you? in communication. I think that's a fantastic idea. You know, having some kind of like a secret phrase or like certain number of words which only has been entered in when you've created the account or something mm. and which only be have and only like a true bank employee or someone will have access to that asking them for that information back. I think that's a in you know, it's a very smart way of uh, protecting uh, oneself, most definitely. Oh, yeah, I, I'm all for it as well. Am I the only one who interrogates the bank when they call me? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> Occupational hazard. All right, let's move to China now. China's central bank set uh, its daily fix for the onshore rate at the strongest level since May 2018. So we know China's central bank has pledged to use more monetary policy tools to spur China's economy, drive credit expansion, and um, you know it's sending a lot of signals and this is one of the signals of course China sending setting its UN fixing at its strongest level since 2008 we know that the yen did very well one of the best performing uh, currencies last year here in Asia how do you think China's monetary policy uh, reaching into its toolbox lowering interest rates how do you see that impacting the yen and its trade surplus yeah from one messy situation to the next right i mean uh, like i think there are two main headwinds that China is facing right now. One is the property sector, which we've discussed about quite a bit in, in your past couple of shows, where it is quite precarious situation, right? You have a number of these property development companies that have tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of liabilities, and there's just no way for them to come out of this because when, they're trying to, when all of these people start trying to do fire sales, there just aren't enough buyers out there in the market, and that tends to a very negative cyclical loop for prices to continue correcting. December, we saw a little bit of stability, but I don't think we've seen the last of that. That's something that the Chinese government wanted to get in front of and hence come up with all of these 
safety mechanisms, trying to ensure that they can't take any more debt, try and wind down. And I mean, this can only happen in China where they try and get the, the chairman or the founder or the promoter to use his or her own personal wealth to start at least settling some amount of debt. But anyways, that's, that, I think that's one big issue that the government was facing. And this is potentially kind of like self-created. The second one is this whole Omicron, you know, uh, the new variant that's come up. Mm -hmm. And uh, the bigger picture-wise, just China's COVID policy. I mean, the number of horror stories, like I was reading this article about in Vietnam, these truckers who are bringing across fresh fruit from the country to China, Mm. they've had to wait anywhere from 10 days to 90 days just letting the fruit rot in their truck because China's basically closed down its borders. I mean, if you read about how China's executing on this Winter Olympics plan of theirs, it's out of like a sci-fi novel, right? Where everything is completely closed off. Hmm. Guys, athletes can land, different trains, different buses, different pathways, you name it. It's, It's literally like having, you know, a country within a country that's completely segregated. And that's causing all sorts of issues when it comes to economic growth. So from a full year perspective, you know, China claimed that it grew 8.1% for the year, albeit of potentially a lower base in calendar year 2020. But if you look at the last three months of the year, uh, GDP growth was 4%. And, you know, whatever you might believe of the numbers that come out of China, if you want to take a certain haircut to it by all means, etc. Mm. But even on a relative basis, you can see that growth halved on an annualized basis in, you know, the last three months of the year, and even if you look at the first 20 days, right, given that this virus has been spreading to a couple more cities, 14 million people were suddenly uh, tested, etc. I mean, if you look at retail sales, the growth has slowed down to under 2% in December. The expectations were, like the rest of the world that's coming out of this vaccine, one of this COVID uh, virus situation, mm-hmm. one way or the other, at least the opening up has begun to a staggered extent. China is kind of going the other way around. So I think it was completely right in the central bank. uh, BDOC had to pull off something. They had to reduce the cost of borrowing, try to get, you know, credit like smoothly flowing across the economy. It's not just the interest rate, right? I mean, they dropped the seven-day repo rate. They injected a certain amount of cash. And there's always a bit of an issue during the uh, Chinese Lunar New Year uh, where there is a cash crunch. And they've also basically told lenders, that look, you uh, you know, we are happy if you keep less amount of cash balances on your uh, balance sheet, please. And you're trying to encourage lending, maybe not in the property space, but in the rest. So definitely required, potentially to some extent, not much more of a choice, I guess, given the slowdown. And that will naturally have an effect on uh, the Chinese yuan. I think one big issue country was facing was, like you mentioned, right? It was one of the best performing currencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, uh, uh, one of the best performing Asian currencies. And as an exporter, you kind of want your currency to be weak to some extent. So this could be another move from, you know, the China trying, you know, kill two birds with one stone, hope to see their currency start trying to deflate a bit. Uh, we know that central banks across Europe and US are raising interest rates. Naturally, yield seekers would go to those currencies and potentially sell off yuan which should help the export sector in China if and when they change their COVID policy to some extent. 
All right, let's swing from China to India. For almost two years, India steeled itself to ready the country's premier insurer, LIC. Nearly $500 billion in assets, valuation estimated as high as $203 billion. This could become its biggest ever stock listing. It's been described as India's Aramco moment, the public offering of Life Insurance Corp of India. And as with the Gulf oil giant's $29 billion listing, the LIC debut is said to be something that will test India's capital markets and global appetite for, um, you know, what's been described as India's crown jewel. So how excited should investors be about India's biggest ever IPO? Any investors outside of India? Uh, I'm not sure how easy it's going to be to get access to that, to be honest. But from the perspective of just looking at India as an investment destination that is opening up and becoming more market-oriented, I think it's fantastic. I mean, this is a company that has, I think, close to like 300 or 400 million policies on its books, right? It's, I think, like three times or four times the size of AIG. That's the scale with which this company operates. So from a very, you know, 20,000 feet in the air view, Mm. fantastic. From the perspective of if I even could be an investor looking at this company to invest into, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit scary, right? Because it's been under basically a bureaucratic or government rule since the country's independence. In terms of data, it comes out with one data point every year which one would have hoped that a company of this size that is technically owned by the people should be revealing a lot more of the inner workings, the assets, the liabilities, the workings of it, the cost, uh, you know, ratio metrics, which other insurance companies are more than happy to provide. So I think from that aspect, it's a little bit, uh, I, I would be a little bit cautious with this. And that's where it gets a little bit scary, to be honest, because this is a company, you know, especially in India, 300, 400 million people have this insurance. uh, And apparently like 10% of the allocation is going to go to retail investors. So it's just, you know, a brand name, right? Like, oh, I have an LIC policy. I can easily buy shares of it. Let me go up, go out there and open an account to uh, be able to invest in this. And Mm. there are tens of thousands of stories like this coming up online where we believe in LIC because we have the insurance policy, but it's very different to be a user of the service vis-a-vis an actual investor in the underlying business, honestly not knowing enough. I, I mean, I was reading stories about how bankers, government officials, everyone, like they're literally working, clocking in 15-hour, 18-hour days trying to actually understand what the valuation of this company is. Right. Which is a little bit late in the day considering they have like, I think, two months, right? I think it's like March or something is when the IPO should happen. So, well, it's a 65-year-old firm. So you can imagine the mountain of the policy documents that they have to pour over to come up with and, that. And, <laughs> that and they won't be digitized, Michelle. Oh. These are going to be documents in Painfully the manual. most randomest parts of India, right? So... Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Also, global investors apparently are a little worried, uh, you know, about whether or not the firm of this history, 65 years old, can compete against uh, up-and-comers. 
All right. Let's turn from there to and return back home to Singapore. We've been around the world today. So you might have seen cryptocurrency ATMs at Singapore's malls. Um, I see one at the PLQ mall when I walk around. But no more. Cryptocurrency ATMs are being closed. Singapore is moving to dramatically limit consumer marketing of crypto. So... We knew this was coming. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, signals in this direction that, you know, retail customers needed to be protected from the brutal volatility in cryptocurrency moves. Spain also shielding retail investors from crypto advertising in public spaces. The UK's advertising regulator has banned what it terms as misleading ads by eToro and Coinbase. Arun, is advertising the new priority area for regulators in this space? 100%. And honestly, this should have been done a long time back. Really? And this is coming from a person in the fintech startup ecosystem. And I know how difficult it is for a company to grow, to attract users. You're fighting against incumbents who have much more, you know, deeper pockets for advertising, marketing, etc. But all of that being said, there has to be a common underlying rule of law in place that doesn't lead, especially retail investors, to think that this is easy money to just go out there, you open an account, and you'll suddenly be a millionaire overnight, right? And this is something that, I mean, look at crypto.com. I mean, fantastic from the perspective of Matt Damon coming in and saying fortune favors the brave, Mm. but from an aspect of a retail investor who potentially saw this ad a couple of months back, you know, just falling in love with this aspect of making money. And I mean, who isn't greedy uh, in this day and age, and then suddenly seeing their crypto holdings down 30%. If anything, this would have been a lot worse if Bitcoin was up 30% since the last couple of months, because that would have just refueled and put even more uh, gas into the fire where, a lot more people would have started believing in this, right? And and I think that's something that's extremely scary and regulators have to kind of clamp down on this. Look at just stock trading, right? In the US, I think $40 billion worth of stocks were bought by retail investors in 2019. In 2021, in the middle of the pandemic, where people are apparently like losing jobs and they should be concerned about their future, mm-hmm. that 40 billion became 250 billion or 280 billion. So, it, you know, th- this aspect of brokerage free trading, everything is free, everyone makes money in the markets, this is the easiest game in town to become rich. That messaging has prevailed so much through these various advertisements that have come out in the past couple of months, the past couple of years for that matter. I think this is something that the government and the regulators across the globe should definitely be clamping down on. You would expect the co-chairman of the Blockchain Association uh, to say that, yes, cryptocurrency is not a suitable asset class for most retail investors, but there are other ways of protecting the inexperienced from financial harm. So let's explore his um, argument, Chia Hoklai. He says, one alternative is to classify cryptocurrencies as specified investment products much like structured warrants or futures. So you go through an assessment before you can invest in cryptocurrencies. Are there perhaps less heavy-handed ways of perhaps dealing with the risk stemming from investing in cryptocurrencies? I think I do feel that an avenue should always be provided to people and government shouldn't interfere 
that much in the way a person can manage their own finances. But it's just about regulation to ensure that the risks are clearly highlighted. Right. Now, I, I don't mean this to be like a medical ad in the U.S. where if it's one minute long, 30 seconds talks about how great this drug is, and then the next 30 seconds talks about how uh, sadly you could like potentially die because of having this drug, right? So it's uh, from the aspect of very clearly explaining and going through like a risk analysis, right, of a person and letting them understand and realize that just something simple, fortune favors the brave, but just to let you know, Right. This is an asset that dropped 90% in value just two years ago. Mm. Would you be comfortable if that happened? You know, and just letting, I think that is where the government should draw the line of just coming in, putting that messaging across or government forcing companies to do it, obviously, mm. and then letting people make their own decisions. So as long as that happens, it, it's like, you know, an, uh, an accredited investor, if some of their high yield junk bonds goes bankrupt, so be it, right? right because right. clearly the, the regulation showed uh, what could go wrong. You acknowledged it. Thank you very much. Exactly. Listen, I'm all for fair advertising and as much information out there so that you can make the choices for yourself. So, yes, I agree with you on that point. Arun, thank you so much as always for a great, great discussion. Wonderful having you on air with us. My pleasure as always. Thank you for having me, Michelle. He's Aaron Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.